Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Erwin, the field CTO at Tentree, and we discuss what intelligent infrastructure is, creating a culture that fosters an appetite for calculated risk, and how they are building technology that facilitates work-life balance. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. There we go. Hey, buddy. How are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Good. How do I pronounce your first name? Is it Irwin? Yeah, Irwin. Got it. Boom. Nailed it. First try. That's how we know it's going to be a good day. <laughs> yeah, no worries. No worries. Where are you located? Uh, I'm actually in the Bay Area, California. How is it there? Is it like, an, is it like a zombie apocalypse where everybody's leaving? Because that's kind of like the feel I've been getting. Oh my God. Um, I don't want to jinx it. So uh, yeah, there's a bunch of different dynamics going on. Part of it is, I think this, this mini exodus because of you know, the way these tech companies are adjusting to, you know, mobile, uh, mobile workforce. And then, um, you know, the other thing that's kind of added to it is the fires. There's and so, fires going um, on. yeah, yeah. There was like at one point, 2000 different fires in California. We've lost maybe, I don't know how many millions of acres. But uh, yeah, wow. and so the Bay Area and most of California was covered in smoke for a long time. So I didn't know if that's what you're talking about, but it really did physically look like uh, kind of a, a mini apocalypse. Uh, sky was red, all kinds of stuff, but it's, it's cleared up in the last few days. Oh, I saw that news article. My producer had sent it to me where it's like, it was the title of it was like San Francisco's like living on Mars and it was like an orange <laughs> haze. It looked just like that. It looked just like that. And so I think between the fires and like this mini tech exodus and you know, I, I think I was just talking to one of your producers about like the storms that are kind of coming up in the Gulf Coast. I'm like, I'm wondering, we're like in the middle of a science fiction movie where like, you know, the earth is uh, taking its revenge on us. <laughs> <laughs> Too many iPhones. No, but yeah, exactly. Maybe exactly. the storms will put out the fires. You know, that'd be if nice. they overlap, that would be great. But I don't think that they're overlapping. Unfortunately, I, I heard uh, there was a snowstorm in Colorado that put out some fires over there. So that was a good thing. But uh, we're not getting very much rain here in California. Oh, man. Well, so I'm really excited to talk with you because I don't understand intelligent infrastructure and it seems to be an emerging term. And as I was researching you and, and Tentree, is that how you say it, Tentree? Tentree, yeah. Yeah. As I was researching you and Tentree, you guys kept talking about this intelligent infrastructure. So I was like, yeah. you know what? I'm going to talk to everyone and he's going to help me understand <laughs> it like I'm a two-year-old. Okay. Okay. Um, you want me to start? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Cool. So, um, I, I guess I'll ask by, 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 or I'll start by asking kind of like, you know, how much uh, of the infrastructure kind of world do you understand? I, I know that your background is in coding and that kind of stuff, software engineering. Well, as a two-year-old, um, <laughs> I, under <laughs> I understand food time. No. So my background, uh, software engineering, building applications, and then you know, doing it myself as a full stack and then building teams and teams of teams and engineering organizations. So I'm familiar with like the DevOps, like life cycle, uh, cool. you know, circle CI deploying, like all, you know, everything you would take to need to get a fortune 500 or like commercial hundred thousand plus user application up out the door. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So let's talk about intelligent infrastructure. <laughs> so we'll use that as kind of like the launching point. So, um, Intelligent infrastructure, I think, in our view, um, kind of starts off as like a, a like a subdomain of a much larger kind of conversation around AI in IT operations. So you might have heard of a, a term called AI ops. 
Um, generally, it stands for artificial intelligence in IT operations. And the gist of this big technology category is that we've been generating telemetry and data and log data. Um, and you're well aware of, of where all the different layers are and, and how there are um, you know, logging facilities and every single one of those things. We collect all those things and then that ends up becoming like a giant, like big data pool. And AI ops is meant to look at that giant pool and, and be able to align that data and make inferences about how the various layers are, are um, related to one another. And um, eventually, you know, we believe in this space of AI ops that with enough uh, repetition and with enough validation, um, the AI will be able to recognize predictively when there are going to be situations or issues that have to be remediated on the infrastructure or wherever else in the stack. So I guess to kind of revisit it, it's collecting telemetry, analyzing that telemetry, using that data to predict some kind of um, bad situation that would, that would mean you know, problems for either the application or for someone having to resolve some situation. Uh, and then, you know, either highlighting it or eventually uh, autonomously um, fixing that problem. Intelligent infrastructure is just a, a kind of subgroup of the AI ops category. That's how we view it at Tintree. And the idea is if the infrastructure itself is able to collect its own telemetry and remediate these low level issues, either performance, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the world of Tintree is capacity management, all of the things that a human being would have to look at dashboards and you know and gauges and click buttons and turn knobs if all of those things can be taken care of by an ai then that frees up a tremendous amount of bandwidth so that those people those professionals that are that are you know taking care of that infrastructure can move on and and, and do much more innovative things support the business support software engineers such as um, you know previous uh, roles that you have previously um, held and so that's really the, the gist of intelligent infrastructure. Now, obviously, infrastructure comes in a number of different flavors. And so when we talk about it at Tintree, we're, we're talking specifically about um, storage. But we think that as the infrastructure um, gains intelligence, it will understand other parts of the ecosystem and be able to interact with other pieces of intelligent infrastructure, such as the compute layer or the networking layer. Uh, again, um, e effectively creating a self-managing and or autonomously running uh, infrastructure for, for all those applications that run on top of it. That makes That's, sense. Yeah, that sounds really cool. What's the problem that people have and they look at you and you're like, oh, you're the solution to that problem? <laughs> well, that's going to be another kind of long uh, kind of description. Uh, you got as much time as you want, my friend. Hang out. <laughs> you could, we could bring your sleeping bag. You could sleep over. We got snacks. <laughs> you know, I started backpacking. And I started investing in things like tents and backpacks, and that would be really, really cool. We did like a little uh, mini fort in my <laughs> office here. Yes. Um, so uh, let, let's look at the problem specifically in, in the realm of storage, which is where Tintry lives and breathes, right? So um, probably starting, I would say, early 20 years ago, um, when you built an application, that application was a piece of software that ran on a kernel, that ran on a piece of hardware, a computer, um, and then uh, there was probably some storage uh, attached to that computer. Either it was, it's installed in, on the server itself or it was attached to you know, some kind of fiber channel network and, and there was a SAN. And um, that relationship, so the, 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 the software and the operating system and the physical computer and the storage that it ran were, was kind of a silo. And you could architect every single layer in that stack so that it met the needs of the application that was going to be using it. About 20 years ago, uh, VMware came out and was like, you know, we're going to squash all this, right? So we're going to be able to take a single physical computer, we're going to um, put some software on it called a hypervisor, and we're going to trick all these individual operating systems into thinking they have a slice of this hardware. 
probably 10 years ago, we started seeing a lot more shared storage. So the, the idea is that virtualization uh, is really powerful, but you have all these like single points of failure everywhere. And so to be able to do something like high availability, we want shared storage. So all that, that persistent, you know, stateful data is living in a shared space connected to all these different physical nodes. And then the virtual machines can, can basically migrate from node to node to node and provide this kind of high availability. In the case that a physical computer it dies because they never die, right? They never, they never go out or they never crash. And so that shared storage issue is kind of at the crux of all of this operational uh, kind of friction on the infrastructure side. So what happens is the, the infrastructure or the storage is shared. So that means that uh, any number of virtual machines can live inside that storage. And it's really hard to architect it if you don't know what's gonna go inside of it. So commonly what happens is you either architect it for like a high watermark, like, oh, I just need so much more um, you know, performance capacity than I'll ever need. And that's what we call over-provisioning. That makes it very expensive. Or you try to slice it up into little tiny um, uh, slices so that when something breaks, it's not affecting a whole bunch of other things. And so that causes all kinds of overhead. So, you know, like if you only have 10 things to manage, that's a lot easier than having to manage 100 things. Um, and so that's really kind of at the, the core of this conundrum when it comes to shared storage and virtualization. And that's where Tintry was founded. That, that, that kind of the core of that problem is where we were founded to, to solve that. And so, so did you, um, did you like spin out from, from like a VMware or a pure storage or some, did you, like, how did you identify yeah. that this was a problem and like join this? Did you, you did, you're not a founder, are you? Or so I'm not, I'm not a founder, but I was, I was around, I was employee, I think around 100 when uh after tintry was founded so, so why did you go um, there why why were you like so that's that company's gonna go to win yeah, yeah, yeah like that that company's <laughs> gonna win i want to go over there so um here's my own personal story with tintry so my background is in it infrastructure so if, if you haven't gathered it I, I kind of spent most of my career building the infrastructure that supported the applications that um you know software developers would would develop right and um, in about 2011, uh, from about 2008, 2007 to 2011, um, I actually relocated here to the Bay Area. And I worked uh, mainly as a consultant for the venture capital community. And one of the things that I got a, a chance to do across many different kind of practices was uh, see new technologies that were really trying to solve these really interesting problems. And um, in 2011, I heard about this company called Tintree that was coming out. And they uh, presented their technology. I went ahead and went to their website. They just come out of stealth. I said, contact me. I'm one of the few people that probably ever would go to an Apple website and say, contact me. And they did, and they did a demo. And it was so mind blowing based on what I had known and what I'd known, what I described even earlier to you, what they were proposing was something that I thought was impossible. And so, you know, obviously, you know, we kind of have this, um, this, this kind of mental threshold that I call like the BS threshold. So when something seems too good to be true, <laughs> You have a tendency to say, you know what, that can't that can't possibly be true, right? And you you either have a chance to like, put it on the back burner or just kind of put it in a box in the back of your mind or challenge them and say, you know what, I think it's BS, but let's try it out. So fast forward about a year, um, I had actually transitioned from venture capital into the biotech space, and I was hired by a pharmaceutical in San Francisco called Medivation uh, to lead their global infrastructure operations. And uh, we knew that um, you know, we were going to have to do some really different things uh, for Medivation. They were in the process of kind of transitioning from an R&D company to a commercial company. And so when you're doing a bunch of science and, and, and uh, research and development, that's a different challenge than having to stand up a commercial company that is going to be selling a drug across the globe. And so that means a lot of growth, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so I knew virtualization was going to be a big part of it. And I remember this company called Tintry that did this really interesting thing that I thought was BS for storage and virtualization. I brought them in and we did a bake-off and they wiped the floor with like everything that I brought in, everything that we had legacy, uh, anybody that came in. Uh, and these are kind of the, you mentioned one of the brands um, or one of the vendors, uh, the, the the kind of big ones that you have heard about. And I don't know if we're, we're allowed to say other companies. We can names, do whatever but... we want. <laughs> <laughs> so back then it was like the NetApp and the EMCs of the world, right? And, and you know, my own personal claim to fame at Metivation is that I actually made one of those vendors quit. They actually didn't respond to an RFP because of the requirements that I had, I had designed based on the capabilities of the system from Tintry. So uh, we ended up implementing it. Um, we spent a ton of money. I kind of hinged my career on it. My, my VP of IT at the time was like, this is a new vendor. We don't know about their finances. You know, they're, they're going to share with us as much as they possibly can, but um, we don't know if they're going to be around. And I don't know if this technology is really going to work. Is it too good to be true? And I, I kind of, in, in, in no uncertain terms, was like, where are they going to do this? Or, you know, I'll take the heat for it if it doesn't work out. And it turned out that it worked so great that uh, we were able to kind of not only meet our goals uh, within the two years that uh, the, the executive team had set for us, but we were able to exceed those goals. We were able to scale an infrastructure. Um, I think the numbers when, when I left were 900% from the day that I got there. And we were able to keep our operational expenses relatively low. So we imagine having an infrastructure that had thousands of virtual machines um, across three different countries and only having three full-time employees managing the entire thing. And no specialists. That's another thing that um, you know you're going to hear from from me talking about intelligent infrastructure. Is that if the infrastructure is intelligent, then you don't need certifications or or specialization to learn how to to, to use it. It actually knows how to use itself, and um, and that's what, something that we were able to achieve um, in practice, um, even as long as as eight years ago. Yeah, and it's progressive because so, you're taking knowledge and automating it essentially, but that can get right. updates and it can become smarter. That's right. That's exactly right. You do get better over time, and uh, that's a really important thing for for folks to understand that the capabilities of, of the technologies that are available to them as they're, you know, transitioning. We we talk about kind of the the the, the apocalypse or like you know coming out of this pandemic, and you'll you'll hear. I'm sure you've heard all kinds of things from from CTOs and CIOs around what's the new normal, and the new normal has to be these types of technologies so that we can empower whatever that that vision is for you know workplace mobility or agility or whatever that might be. So anyway, I ended up deciding that, um, you know, my time in IT was up in 2014. I, you know, came over to Tintry, um, became a principal sales engineer uh, for four years, and then uh, recently came back as field CTO. That's amazing. Now I want to, I want to yeah. dive a little deeper. Um, you brought up this interesting topic that I, I really want to, I really want to know more about. Um, you you were talking about like you bet your career on this or that you were interested the the topic of conversation that i want is about risk so yeah you, i get asked about that a lot about how do i get when people have me come speak at their companies that one of their recurring objectives is empower my people or like put the sentiment out there that they can take risk we want to get people to take more risk because sure. that's something that some companies have trouble with and so because you are, you know, you just shared the story of like, you had this thing, the company was a little bit new, you were a little bit. So I want you to actually kind of like walk me through the best you can. Like, what was it that gave you the the confidence in, in taking that risk? Yeah. Um, yeah, I wish I could take credit uh, 100% for taking the risk. Um, I think what we had at Medivation, and I think what we have at Tintree, 
and many of the successful organizations that I've ever uh, been a part of is a culture of acceptable risk, right? That you don't, you can't change the world if you're sitting behind like this wall of like comfort or, you know, and I always say, you know, in, in the tech industry, especially in, in IT, um, you'll always hear somebody say, no one gets fired for buying Cisco or, you know, one of these brand names that, that kind of, that's kind of well-known. But I'll always say no one remembers you when you buy Cisco, right? And that's not to say that their technology is, is not good. It's, it's excellent, obviously. But if you're trying to do something different, it's really difficult to do something different by doing a whole bunch of what other people have already done. And um, that is, uh, so David Hong was the CEO of Medivation at the time. And um, I consider him just kind of a huge inspiration in my career. Obviously, it's been eight years and I still talk about him. But he uh, obviously uh, put together a, a foundation of a culture that was willing to take acceptable risks to make big differences. And that, that culture just permeated all the way down the organization. And so when I had my VP of IT, you know, kind of, um, you know, extending that culture into the IT department, you know, we knew that we were doing something risky, but we were willing to go ahead and, and, and do it if it meant that we were going to be able to achieve all these really different or differentiated capabilities um, versus what we had known before. Yeah, no, that's good. That's what we want, right? So the root of it is a culture that makes yeah. it known that taking intelligent risk is accepted, that you're not going to get yeah. like burned or fired for something not working perfectly. How do you, did they like train you on, on like how to analyze risk? Is that just something that you kind of went with your, with your gut on? Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe this is in this particular instance is a virtue, but maybe in other instances is not necessarily that great of a virtue. Throughout my career, I've been kind of a shoot from the hip kind of, I don't know if you watch football, but a Brett Farvey kind of, you know, uh, IT guy. And, you know, I've, I've always believed that um, it's really difficult, like I said, to do something different if you're doing something, if you're just repeating what other people have already done. Now, uh, with regard to uh, our decision to uh, invest in Tintry early on, um, you know, we had to do a lot of, you know, analysis. We had to figure out, okay, like, what are we, what, what are we looking to gain out of implementing such a new technology? And then what is the, obviously, what is the calculated risk for it that doesn't work, right? And so for us, it was like, okay, look, if it doesn't work, we'll just go back and, and, and buy the thing that everybody buys, right? Whether that's, you know, NetApp or Pure or, or EMC or whatever that might be. But if it does work, this is what it means. And we had to go and do a lot of, of exercises to, to, to almost like stretch the imagination of our business partners in IT and say, hey, if we could develop a, or if we could implement an, uh, an infrastructure environment for you, right? This is before infrastructure as a service, but if we could basically do infrastructure as a service for you, the various lines of business, whether that is like the statistical analysis group or the clinical trials group or the, the you know, whatever finance group or whatever. If we could take something that you're accustomed to waiting six weeks for and turn it into six minutes, is that valuable to you? And, and that was kind of the, the, the core of the calculus that we, we had to, to decide on. I like that. I like that. Yeah. So you have a little bit of a design background. Can you, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Um, yeah. So in terms of like, like infrastructure architecture and design, no, so, like uh, digital illustration design, I'm a big design geek. So, Oh, uh, digital illustration. Um, so yes, I went to the Academy of art, uh, college. I actually, uh, dropped out in order to get into it as weird as that sounds, but yeah, uh, from the time I, from as early as I could remember, I was, uh, like, a I drew a lot. Um, I think for probably the first 18 years of my life, I wanted to be a comic book artist. Um, and so wanted to be working for Marvel or DC or any one of those things uh, or any one of those companies. And, 
and um and yeah that was a that was a, a big part of my life it's still kind of a, a part of my life i do it as, as kind of a hobby it's, it's really interesting to be able to kind of step away from this very analytical very kind of like uh you know business related world and then just kind of you know escape and and kind of exercise the creative legs do you do you keep like an instagram or like some sort of portfolio online where you post your stuff I mean, a little bit. I I don't really um, do stuff um, like on Instagram. I've got an Instagram. Uh, it's got a bunch of food photos. So I I picked mm. up cooking like probably fifteen or twenty years ago, and and so uh, I got into like molecular gastronomy, and I can do all kinds of things uh, with regards to like some of those techniques. And I think I just kind of nerd out on a bunch of different uh, subjects. And I my Instagram is kind of a, a accurate reflection of what I'm going through at, at whatever uh, time or whatever day. I burned some stuff this afternoon for lunch. <laughs> so I, I make a uh, turkey toast for lunch. And so what okay. it is, it's like a piece of bread and then you toast the bread and then you put like, you know, like turkey or, you know, some sort of meat on there and like some cheese and some oregano. And then you put it in the oven and you broil it, you know, for like three minutes, four minutes. And it comes out like all the cheese is crispy and it's like this yeah, turkey yeah. toast stuff. Right. Yeah. And uh, it, it's amazing. It's my favorite. I even bought that domain a few years ago, just in case if I ever wanted to like turn it into a turkey toast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was wax paper and I didn't think about it. I was like, yeah, let's just try the wax yeah. paper. And yeah, cause we're yeah. out of tin foil and there's an open flame, like from the, <laughs> from broil with a gas stove. And I started a little fire in there. So I had, I had smoked turkey toast. <laughs> Yeah, and it probably tasted like a crayon a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. I caught it. I caught it quick enough to where, like, right when it started its initial smoking, oh, okay. I, I was able to save it a little bit. But yeah, it was a a little uh, experience with using uh, wax paper on broil with an open flame. Not not good. That's a common thing, you know. It actually happens more than you think. The, the confusion between parchment paper and and wax paper happens all the time. Oh, I don't even know the difference. Can you give me a breakdown? Yeah, so wax paper is exactly that. It's 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 paper that's coated in wax. It's really meant to kind of separate things that are in the refrigerator or you know something that's room temperature or cooler. Uh, and then parchment paper is actually impregnated with silicone, and so it's nonstick, but it's also safe to I think 500 degrees or something like that. So next time uh, you you're out of foil, but you have parchment paper, then you, I think you'll be okay. I, I did have it too. We we cook like <laughs> all of our meals. Like we're we're big into cooking. So like it was just a fun mistake, but yeah, I, I saw it in there and I just, I, I grabbed the wax paper bit and I learned and I learned, so I made a mistake, but I learned something new and it wasn't a catastrophe. And you were willing to take the risk. Yeah. And it didn't work out, but it didn't, it didn't, you know, destroy your entire home. So that's, that's exactly the kind of the, the mentality I think that uh, we were talking about earlier, for sure. If anything, it's created a net positive, right? Because now we so. get to have this conversation about food. <laughs> we can have a broad ranging conversation i'm sure yeah so what are you drawing what do you like to draw so um most of my my education was in uh traditional illustration so like pencil like dry media uh charcoal uh, pencils um pastels that kind of thing i've uh recently or probably over the last three or four years kind of trans transitioned to like uh, digital uh, illustration which is like basically on my ipad using procreate and, and an apple pencil and then the subject matter I tend to draw um, is 
yeah, probably not too far from what I focused on in college, which is the uh, human form. So I, I wanted to draw comic books, right? And I was horrible at drawing cars and buildings and that kind of thing, which is probably why I'm not drawing comic books. But drawing the people themselves was something that, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to get good at. And so that's kind of what I focus on most of the time. That's pretty cool. So you must, you must have some like really good whiteboarding skills. Uh, I don't know if that translates to whiteboarding, <laughs> but um, I will say illustration does provide um, a, a really, or anything artistic or creative, I think, especially when it's related to storytelling, it does help you, as corny as it sounds, in making like decent PowerPoint presentations. So, so when you want to do, you know, when you're trying to convey an idea, and I think a lot of my career, even in IT, was about convincing people to spend millions of dollars that they don't really want to spend. <laughs> so, you know, pictures do help. Uh, and I, I wish it wasn't so simple, but sometimes it does really help a lot. Yeah, it sounds like you have a pretty diverse background. You had some sales experience, you had technology experience, you had some illustration yeah. and art. It sounds like it, it really helps you, all those, all those abilities. Well, I don't know if I would call them abilities. And I would say, you know, kind of reverting back to what, you know, we discussed earlier, you know, my personality is to take risk. And that also means even if I change careers or if I take on some other, you know, endeavor to, to learn skills or do something different for work. And so, um, and then that also kind of informs my 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 level of, of of comfort with with that risk, right? So, so far, you know, I'm I'm uh, 42 now. Um, nothing's really bitten me in the butt, <laughs> so I feel like I'm empowered now as I get into the you know the the middle part of my life to just take whatever risks I, I think are 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 uh, appropriate. And so, like when we talk about culture and a culture of accepting risk, like how does that actually play out so you run your team right you have this team there is it just is the act of it like just bringing it up like every now and then and as like a topic or like how do you how do you embed that into the culture so um i I don't know that i'm not going to be able to share like some formulaic way that your listeners are going to be able to like you know step by step implement something that's similar this is my particular approach. So when I work with people, I really do invest a lot of my time in kind of the mentorship aspect of it. And mentorship is is a lot more than just kind of someone asking you a question and you giving them an answer. Um, to me, it's it's really, again, my background is in art, and maybe this is just an artifact of my, my education in, in that space. But, you know, I really, for people that work for me, work with me, I really want them to, to exercise or stretch those create those creative fibers. And so even in infrastructure uh, engineering and operations, you know, I, somebody might say, hey, we're trying to solve this problem. And they might look at a, a wiki or they might look at a, at, a, at a white paper for how to do it. And I'll challenge them and say, look, is this the best way that you think? Or this is, the, is this the most elegant way? Or is this the, the, the most efficient way of doing what you're trying to accomplish? And they may say yes or they may say no, but that's a conversation. And that's a discussion where we get to explore whether or not there are better ways to do it. And, you know, um, again, for people that work with me, if there's uh, risk associated with doing it differently than what's been documented or whatever that might be, let's, let's look at that risk. And if I'm the leader, so for instance, you work for me, then my job is to make sure that I, you, I support you. If, if you want to do this thing that's really different, but you think it's going to really make a difference, then I've got your back, right? I've got your back, not just to my management level, not just to your peers. I've got your back up and down the organization. And you have to be willing to, to do that, uh, to, to kind of foster that kind of that culture. Do you ever get over into like the design and marketing side of Tintree? I do. I do. So in the office of the CTO where I work, um, we do have a lot of hats that we, that we, that we wear. And so 
Some of it is uh, customer facing, so representing the company at large to, to organizations, uh, external organizations, with, like such as yourself or analysts or even customers. Uh, but it also means that we have to take what we learn from the field and, and come back and, and inform our, our marketing and design approaches as well. So uh, we have a really strong marketing and, and uh, marketing team, but um, they've been really awesome in, in terms of, you know, wanting our input and, and really seeking kind of that uh, creative uh, kind of uh, conversation. Nice. Yeah, because, I mean, it'd be hard to like not give some insights or feedback when you have like such a background in it, right? Because you want you want the company to be the like the best it can be. Well, I think so, but you also kind of have to like you have to walk that fine line. Not a lot, you know. Not everyone is seeking your opinion, <laughs> so sometimes you got to <laughs> be judicious in, in where you offer it. But you know, I think um, at least for myself and for uh, our team here at Tintry, um, we've got such a strong culture of really just wanting to be to help, wanting to be helpful. And it doesn't, you know, we have very few egos in the organization. I think we have egos where it's good because, you know, you kind of have to have one to, to do something so different. Um, but uh, we're also, uh, you know, strongly committed to having a culture where, you know, we share ideas openly. And not, there's not such thing as a, as a bad idea. And I think I don't remember where I heard this, but, you know, we challenge ideas. We don't challenge people. So, you know, we don't make it a personal thing. We want to make sure that we get the best out of, out of everything. That seems to be like the trend in the newer companies. Like I would imagine that there aren't a whole lot of startups who don't share those type of values. But at the same time, there's like all the legacy companies that are trying to move from the popular like command and control of the 80s to 90s into this yeah. more like empowered organization. Uh, and so I, I'm just, I always try to like look out and forecast the future. And when yep. I see... When I see, you know, the companies getting started, having these values and wanting to improve and grow and have a part of like your employees can have a life too, right? Like all of these different yeah. things uh, and then accountability too. even some of the, some of the harder things like the discipline and accountability. Uh, I like those things that, that they're being talked about. It's a, uh, I, I feel pretty hopeful and bright about the, the future and the growth of technology. I think so. I, I also I, I agree with you. I think it's it's incumbent on on us. I think generationally, right? There's there's a responsibility as as a, a generation as a whole to kind of you know facilitate some of those things that you you uh, just uh, described, um, and then building technology obviously that facilitates those things, right? So you mentioned um, you know work life balance, making sure that you know we're not perpetuating this culture where everyone's working ninety hours a week and wearing that as a badge of honor. You know, to us, or at least to me, and, and to us at Tintry, because we build such differentiated technology that's, you know, again, AI embedded in the, in the infrastructure itself. We don't want our, our our end users and our customers spending hours and hours and hours touching the technology. And I think that's maybe a little different than maybe the the legacy technologies. You know, you want that engagement, and even social media platforms, you want that engagement. And quite frankly, we don't, because it means if you're not engaged with our technology, one, it means it's doing the right thing. It's doing a good job. And two, it means that you have more bandwidth to do more important things. That's exactly it. Like the goal should be to spend as little time as possible inside That's of right. our interfaces so that you're out there doing the things that you love, you know? That's right. That's right. And so, you know, like, uh, you know, I do, I do a lot of uh, kind of um, secondary analysis on, in terms of like human behavior and neurological development and those kinds of things. And so, you know, one of the threads that, that I've been kind of studying is this idea that human beings are very poor at repetitive tasks. That's why we continue to automate them. Uh, 
right? Uh, repetitive tasks um, for human beings offer a lot of, of um, windows for, for um, like errors, right? And that's why, you know, if, if you look at, you know, from the Industrial Revolution uh, in the late 1800s all the way to today, our, our whole like kind of technological direction has been to automate away all those repetitive tasks. And one of the areas where uh, there are a ton of repetitive tasks is in IT management. And again, so, you know, if there's, again, an ethos uh, kind of buried underneath kind of, you know, our vision for, for what our technology is supposed to provide, it's, it's really to kind of take care of those things, automate those really complicated things that do end up essentially being repetitive tasks, uh, and then freeing up our, our end user customers uh, to do those more, to do those things that are, are uh, human beings are actually like better evolved to do like more creative problem solving that kind of stuff yeah so i know i'll get off my soapbox <laughs> i know soapbox it up your repetitive yeah. tasks we're very poor at you know i i've it's interesting because there's like two things going swirling around in my mind the first one is i know that to be true right yeah it's it's just it's a i i believe that persistence is one of the most difficult things uh in the world whether it's persistence of like you know an idea or you know, seeing something through to the end, or just organic matter when you start discussing like the basis of the universe and entropy, right? Like persistence yeah, yeah. is a difficult thing universally. At the same time, it's very difficult to get people to change behaviors and patterns of behaviors. So it's like it's it's almost like we have to draw this finer line between like behaviors and how people are spending blocks of time versus the specific repetitive tasks it's almost like they're you have to you have to have like some nuance there so that the ideas can kind of fit together yeah i mean i, I think my thoughts on it not that i've spent a ton of time on it but just kind of responding to what you just said when you say that human beings i'm just gonna say speak with broad you know in broad terms right human beings are resistant to change i wonder and I don't have an answer for this, but I, I wonder how much of that, especially in the IT field, is, is that resistance to change tied to, you know, our value system. Like, oh, my, my value to the organization is I know how to do this one thing, right? And I'm the best at doing that one thing. And all of a sudden, we, we, we build kind of this, you know, our, our egos center around our ability to do those things, even if they're not really good for us, right? Like if, our, you know, I work 90 hours a week and I get all my projects done on time, like, the, you know, that's that's not a badge of honor, right? Like the, the fact that you get your job done is amazing, right? But we, you know, as leaders and as, as technologists, like we have to help our, these people so that they can still find value in themselves without having to be tied to these things that are so detrimental to our development, right? And you know, one thought that I've had, and not to, you know, kind of uh, digress in, in a different direction, is that we're beginning to see that like technological innovation is happening at a pace that we've never seen before. And I think you could say that almost every era but you know, we're starting to see changes in the way that we implement and, and use technology, like in the span of like even months, not just years or, or decades or half decades or whatever that might be, right? And as you know, over the course of the next decade or so, I think we're gonna see uh, an interesting shift in that um, the way that we implement technology is gonna require like this, this like agile kind of um, skill base, right? So the people that are managing and developing and, and building our technologies in the future aren't going to have the time to become like to spend three years learning Python or, or some um, some programming language. You're going to have to be able to, to be super agile because the technology that we build all those 
uh, applications or services or whatever that might be on is, are going to change much more, uh, much more quickly. So this idea that, um, again, I'll go back to storage, which is where we live, uh, Tintry lives, um, this idea that you're going to have uh, some guy in your organization that's been working on storage for 25 years and they're a storage expert, like that's just going to go away. One, we're not making storage experts anymore. Nobody graduates college and says, hey, I want to be a storage administrator or a storage architect, right? That's and so my dream, Erwin. <laughs> <laughs> so you might be the one, right? But, you know, you, you, I'm sure you've seen, uh, you know, prior to this, this, uh, this pandemic, we, we, we had record kind of uh, unemployment. Uh, in the tech space, right? We, we actually had negative unemployment. We had more job roles or job positions open than we had, you know, what, what they say is qualified people. And so our, our view of that world is, well, what if they don't have to be so qualified? Can you fill those roles if the technology assumes some of those job responsibilities, right? So again, I think over the course of the next decade, we're going to start to see that a lot more and more. Yeah, I saw a job posting the other day and it was like 10 years experience in that, seven years experience. I was just like, come on. And I love sometimes when I see the job roles, I'm like that, I, my favorite thing, which is, is probably weird, but my favorite thing is when I see the job roles and I can like rip it apart in my head to where I can see what they actually need based off yeah. of like some of the words. And I'm like, that's not what you need to solve the problem you're trying to solve. That's uh, right. And I, that I just like move on. <laughs> like, yeah. nope. Back to like not giving your opinions to people that don't ask. I, I heard this, <laughs> I heard this person once explain that like, if you ask, I'm probably saying it wrong, like telephone game, but saying something along the lines, the sentiment was uh, you have to ask a monk like three times or something like that. Or you have to ask a, a, some, like a wise person like three times for help before they're going to help you. Um, and as I've got, I heard that story like a while ago. And then as I've gotten older, it's just become more and more true. So like, the the people that you will try to help that don't ask for your help that's usually a massive waste of time right and sure, then the people yeah. that will ask once they're usually like a half foot into it but the people that'll ask a couple times and keep bothering you about it because they really really want to and then they're asking smart questions on top of that that are more than like things they could google in two seconds and find the answer <laughs> to you know yeah. uh, i find those people tend to to are, are the ones to spend time helping yeah well, i think it's almost like a self-qualifying effort right like they're they're, they're going to spend all that time asking you those questions you're going to engage with them as long as you're you're open to engaging with them and like you know like you said the ones that are not really all the way in it they'll fall off the vine eventually it's like 80 percent of the people <laughs> it is it is and i don't know what the answer to that is i think um you know we live in really interesting times right like i think you know Again, philosophically speaking, and I don't know if you know if you want to go. Down We're this doing direction, that. But we like... are doing that. Yeah. <laughs> that's where that's where I want to go. That's why you keep finding us there. Yeah. yeah well, uh, like technologically, we're evolving faster than human beings can evolve right now. Right. So, um, you know, the way our brains develop, the world is changing faster than we can recognize, and then set it kind of like as a recognizable thing in our brains, right? And and so, it's going to be a really interesting thing, right? I think there's all kinds of compounding things when we talk about AI. Obviously, AI is, is going to color every aspect of our, of our lives, but it's going to be really interesting to see how it changes um, how we essentially educate, not just you know, our young, but like everybody else that has to continue to participate in the society when uh, it changes so fast. Yeah, what you said, like, if we look back, you know, 100 years ago, right? Yeah. Uh, thought there was very few people to listen to 
right? Very few That's people right. listen to whoever controlled the print or some radio. And they would have a series of thoughts and people, those would come out on a topic and everyone was kind of like orbiting around these, these national things, right? And yep. then you would have a thought on them and then that would be discussed. And then you would have what you were saying, like you would have this landscape of like, okay, here's the current landscape. And this is what's socially popular. It's like things that our brains do because we're social animals in the background anyways, right? So you have an idea, you've got this blueprint, this ability to navigate that landscape, right? But today sure. the information iterates so rapidly that it's difficult for us to get a grasp on a landscape to navigate it, but it still works. Yeah. <laughs> Barely, I think in some ways, right? I, I think to your point, right? I think a hundred years ago, we don't necessarily have to go a hundred years ago, but even 30 years ago, when you describe that landscape, that landscape was, was agreed upon by society at large, right? We knew, hey, there's a mountain there. I know I, I don't have to have seen it. Somebody that I trust has seen it and mapped it and that's there. And now we're almost kind of like uh, entitled to our own, each individual person has an entitlement uh, to their own kind of view of what that landscape is. And so it's very hard to find common ground. And that's, that's another kind of discussion that we can have about the, the kind of social fabric and what that means and what you know, everybody living by truth means and, and how everyone has a perspective on, on facts. Um, that, that, that kind of changes things as well. But from a technological perspective, um, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's hard to have a common understanding of something when the thing that we're trying to understand is continuously changing and each individual person that's trying to understand it has a, a different capability of, of being able to understand it. That's a it's, a, it's a really interesting challenge. I don't know what the answer is to yet. <laughs> I love it. No, and I think it's cool because it's, uh, I like to play that game, what are the humans building? Like if we were aliens, you and I were aliens from like yeah. Alpha Centauri or something and we are here. Right. We, we just pop over here and we're like up in the atmosphere in our radar covered craft, right? And yeah. we're like looking at these humans buzz about and work towards something. And it, it's like, what are they doing? Like, what's the end result? You know, like, what are they, what are they producing? What's the byproduct? You've got Tesla shooting out of rockets coming out of earth. You're like, is that what yeah. they're trying to do? They're trying to deploy Teslas to seed the universe with Teslas. Uh, so you've got all these, all these different uh, things happening. So I'm curious for you, like if you had to answer the questions, this is just for fun. Um, sure. What are the humans building? What, what is the answer to that? I don't know. I, you know, sometimes I, I, I've done this kind of thought experiment a number of times in the past and I, I, it's hard for me not to kind of have this not pessimistic view, but kind of like <laughs> just a, a, a dim view of what human beings at large are doing on this planet. So again, if I'm an alien sitting in the atmosphere, looking down at what the world is, is, is like right now, you know, I think that the, the biggest thing that I think is kind of sad is that our species, right? So I often take lessons from, I don't know if you, if you know uh, Yuval Hariri. He's a, an author, a historian, um, wrote a book called Sapiens, a number of books. Oh, yeah. Sapiens yeah. Uh, is one that, uh, and so um, human beings are, as far as we know, we're the first species to, to have something called collective intelligence, right? It's the idea that as our species matures, we don't have to continually learn the same things over and over again. So for instance, if you were born today, you don't have to learn, you know, how to make fire or, you know, how to get water to come out of your, your faucet or, 
Um, you know, obviously there's technological answers for, for all those things, but um, our collective intelligence allows us to, to iterate at a much faster pace and make bigger jumps, technologically speaking, um, every generation. And um, what I can't help but think about is that we've gotten to this place where technologically speaking, we can solve almost every problem that faces our own species, collective hunger, energy uh, creation, storage, all those things. But we're also the only ch uh, species that chooses not to for other reasons, right? We're also the only species that doesn't find equilibrium with its environment. So there's, there's all these things that, that uh, again, if I'm an alien looking at a, at, a, at a planet as a kind of a, a holistic ecosystem where everything has to kind of live in balance, we're the one species that um, generally um, doesn't, uh, doesn't like to live harmoniously within that sphere. Yeah, I think there's a little pushback there. Um, I think so. Just, just I think for so. Fun, because if you if you consider us like citizens of the universe and like scope yeah. it out to that, then like the resources are far more vast. Like if we if we pull the context sure. down to Earth, a hundred percent agree, right? But just yeah. the thing I like to go with like stream of consciousness stuff, you know, like we're just yeah. hanging out. But like, so I fully agree. I'm a hundred percent on on the team with uh, like if we just scope it to Earth. Right, but if we scope it to the universe, it's it's like a different a different story. Like we could be living harmoniously within our universal environment. We could eventually, right? But eventually. the thing is, we don't have we don't have to, right? We we could solve it right now within our our scope of, of just we the could. earth. <laughs> I, I no, for, just, first of all, I love uh, it. And as as you were describing that, my brain was just running through why we haven't. And the first thing that popped in, whether it's right or wrong or or people like it or they don't is that I think this technology has been so fast that when it wasn't possible, maybe 30 years ago, like when it wasn't clearly yeah. possible, like 30 years ago, when, when you were at the point where like, in order to provide this resource, you have to require another human's time. Right. So now yeah. you're going to either imprison or you're at, you have to somehow either pay them or there has to be an economy to support that. But in, right. in, but it's changed. Like if we looked at, if we came into the game today, we would be able to like orchestrate and, and architect a different system, right? Um, so I think what needs to happen is just for the, you know, time, time to, uh, it's more politically correct to say time rather than the old people to die. But like the people, <laughs> the people who are, the people who are there in, in like, you know, in their prime of their career, like in their fifties, 30 years ago, this stuff was not possible. And when they were, yeah. but now it is. And so I think, I think if we just enough time, enough generations, I mean, we're already hearing talks about like universal basic income and the different strategies around how to handle this mass automation that's going to occur. And honestly, like I, I love the idea of benefiting from technology, however that looks. Well, obviously I, I, you're not going to find me arguing against the, you know, Kind of living in that space where technology is taking care. Obviously, you're talking to the field CTO of a company that essentially <laughs> runs uh, self-optimizing storage infrastructure, right? Um, but um, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, this is a much larger conversation. But with regard to you know, kind of you know, you know, the 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 kind of you know, tactile kind of everyday feeling of the benefit of these technologies, you're exactly right. I mean, um, we should benefit from these technologies, and we just got to figure out, like, and like you said, over time. As um, our perception of, of the world changes collectively, then you know hopefully re we react and we change and we shift and we evolve in ways that allow us to kind of you know fit meet that equilibrium that I was talking about. Yeah, and I love the way you talked about 
uh, information and skills and abilities uh, sort of like layering on top of each other, like not needing to, to know how to make fire. And the reason is because like I was searching for purpose and meaning in life, you know, for the past like decade, like really getting into that. And one of the things I found along my journey uh, was how DNA works and DNA copies mm -hmm. information down to the next generation of DNA. And I also sure. see that happening in life. People hand down information to the, to the next generation. And so for me, it was like, that is something that is objectively true. And that was one of the reasons for starting the podcast. Let's have people on and hand their information down to the next generation. But then I saw something cool in the storage world where they're actually using DNA for data storage. Have you come across this? I have not. Oh, it's going to blow your mind. All right. So after you take a look at this company called Catalog, I believe is their name, um, but they store information and they, they just took like, a, uh, I don't know, Jake, if you can find it, chat to me, but they just took like a, like a senior executive for like 20 years at some fortune 500 company, like big technology name over to, to take their product to market because uh, they put like the entire Wikipedia collection into like DNA. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's mainly for like longer term storage. Like they, from what I was reading on their business side of their their site they were going to target part of the market that was like still storing data on like like tapes like long-term stuff that they would just when the tape is going to degrade they copy it over to new tapes because this has a longer shelf life i mean you can go back 10 million years and find dna dinosaur stuff right sure so, yeah absolutely yeah so i i've been following this company for like two or three years and they finally got funding like i think a month ago and then recruited like some really bright people to take it to market. But because you're in the storage space and it's like DNA, I just think it's fascinating that they're storing stuff in DNA. Yeah. I mean, obviously I don't know enough about that, about specifically DNA and, and how data gets encoded. And obviously how do you take those proteins and then eventually make a bit that you can write or read or write or whatever that might be. A really they have interesting a printer. Kind of, I know a DNA printer. Yeah, it's like they, so you got to watch the videos. They show you the videos, they show you everything. That's on, cool. On their, on I'm their totally going to take a look at it. Yeah, that's yeah, like I'm the totally thing you can geek out about like this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and then does that mean like at some point you like you might in, in, uh, inadvertently create like a DNA like data monster that then kind of like mutates? <laughs> a little gremlin, like a little DNA yeah, gremlin? Yeah, well, like eventually yeah. DNA, like, you know, DNA replicates and, and, and then it has a, as it copies itself, right, we, we know that it, it has a tendency to mutate and then that's kind of, you know, you do that enough times and have enough iterations of that and that's how life begins and all that kind of stuff. Really interesting kind of. No, but one, if, of my, uh, one of my thoughts, and I think you'll like it because it's, it's kind of like out there, but um, so when, like, I think it's elephants or deer are born, they just like come out walking and they can like walk and they can Both, yeah. run and like, yeah, they, they have in, in this information's in their DNA, like it's, it's in there, it's pre-programmed in them. And so then I was thinking, okay, well, so you've got that as something that's real, that's out there, that's objectively yeah. true. You have this DNA storage. We're finding that DNA is a really great way. The, the visualization was like a football stadium full of servers compressed down to like my pinky finger. Right. Yeah. So that was like the compression. It was, I think that was the compression ratio you, you'll see in the video on their site, but like, um, so if you, if you take that, so you, we can actually write information to DNA now, and then we pass DNA law. It's like, and then we have the genome editing or the CRISPR editing, Right. It's like, yeah. at what point I'm, I'm curious now, like is Neuralink, am I going to download a package from Neuralink and that's how I'm going to learn a new skill 
or am I going to like splice my DNA and that's how I'm going to learn a new skill or are we going to start putting information into DNA so that like humans will pass it on. So my kid comes out and he's already like a storage expert. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that'd be really interesting to, to kind of uh, uh, dive into that. I, I think when it comes to like DNA, I think there are ways to, I mean, we, we still don't know yet, or maybe, maybe somebody does, but I don't know. And maybe I haven't figured it out or I haven't seen anybody uh, talk about this. But um, you can, I know that you can, there are genetic kind of predispositions to certain things, right? And some of those things are related to like learning methodologies and that kind of thing. Do I, do I think that you could splice somebody's DNA and all of a sudden they, they know Kung Fu? Like I just thinking back to that scene from the matrix where like they plug him into the machine and then Keanu Reeves is like, I know Kung Fu. Um, I don't know, but uh, a predisposition to like, you know, uh, athletic agility and, and, absorbing information at a fast rate, maybe potentially, right? And that's where I think it's really interesting to even kind of compare that to, to neural link, right? Elon Musk's kind of idea where we're going to eventually just all be tethered to like the central AI and we'll just be able to Google things by thinking about it and not be able to comprehend that there's a difference between like, you know, organic recollection and, you know, just getting siphoned from a machine. Yeah, I mean, interesting I conversation. It, I, I, it is. It's, uh, that's why we have to yeah. have you back on, right? Oh, I'd, I'd love to come back on. This yeah. has been like a, an amazing conversation. Um, and and it's, I love the fact that it's relatively wide breadth and, and we can talk about a number of different subjects uh, over the course of the time that we have together. Yeah. So as we start to wrap up, because I want to be uh, you know, aware of the, the hard stop here in like four minutes. Um, what's what's the reason? Why why would people go to Tentree? What do your customers look like? What's what's like the, the elevator pitch for Tentree so we can drive some traffic there? Yeah, so so Tintree, um, we we have an entire portfolio of storage solutions. Our flagship is a product called VM Store, which is this AI embedded storage array that like basically self analyzes and self optimizes, so that it basically runs itself. It can ensure that even in the most high performance, most demanding kind of high churn environments, like these you know enterprise private clouds, virtual desktop infrastructure, these types of things that um, regardless of the end user behaviors, the people that are like logging into the virtual servers and clicking on things, regardless of how busy that is, the system can automatically make sure that um, every single one of those people has high performance. And then we, we have all kinds of layer technologies on top of that, that dramatically reduce operational overhead. So our, our data shows that if you implement uh, Tintry VM store and all of those technologies in the most demanding orchestrated and automated environments, that you can still reduce operational overhead by more than 95%. So that 95% allows our customers to go and do way more innovative things, way more creative things. And that's really our, our hallmark. That's why people come to Tintree. And, um, and we have a rabid kind of almost like cult-like following between our, with our customers. And uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword because some of our largest customers are like the kinds of customers that won't let you share their logo <laughs> yeah, or share that uh, they're using them. But um, it's been something that, uh, you know, we've been at it for almost a decade now and, um, you know, we're really proud of what we've been able to accomplish. And I think if anybody is looking at, at implementing these things, and again, to our earlier point, if, um, you know, this new now means like, you know, more agility, uh, more work-life balance, more technologies that allow your teams to kind of spend more time with their families, uh, then Tintree has to be a, a big part of that. Look at that tie-in. What a pro. Yes. <laughs> Dude, I do have a sales and marketing background as well. <laughs> you're you're awesome. You're This is good. This is good. All right. So what we'll do is we'll put you on the list. We'll have you back on. I love that you were, there was, 
there's like 10 topics we didn't even get to. So that's good. So we'll have you back on again, um, like next year and we'll catch up and see how, see how 10 trees going and have fun talking about like everything from philosophy to technology, the whole nine yards. And then we'll make sure to put uh, notes in like the show notes with links to 10 tree and all the information and uh, about you and all that good stuff. And if there's anything else that I can like help you with, you just let me know. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it, man. Thanks so much, Joel. Really pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Talk soon, buddy. Yep. Thank you. For sure. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.